Why don't you stand where you're at at home tonight and take your Bibles and first, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <laughs> if you just joined us by live stream, thank you for doing so. Please send a message on the comments. And the tag I'd like you to send tonight is, I love my church. You send that to us, please. And we'd like to get a, just a good response of a lot of people watching tonight. Please pull down the prayer page off the comment section. And uh, also pull down your notes for this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And hope your feet are on the floor. You're standing, ready for the reading of God's Word. If you're reading it at home, read it out loud with us as I read the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 2, starting with verse 1, will end at verse 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'd like you to look again at verse 5, and as you're watching my live stream, would you read that out loud together with me, verse 5? Let's say it together. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And for a few minutes tonight, I want to speak to you and encourage you about standing in the power of God. Father, bless your word tonight. We have many different ranges of faith represented. There are those who have a newborn faith watching. There are those, God, who have been saved for a long time, and they have what we would call a mature faith. We would have those, dear Lord, who have a shaky faith. We have those, dear God, who have an unsure faith. We have, Lord, many kinds of faith represented, but tonight we know there's one thing the Bible says, that we must stand, our faith must stand in the power of God. And this evening we pray that you would add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And we pray that you'd add all those increments of faith leading all the way up to charity. Because the Bible says, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you should neither be, un that they help us so that we are, un we are not unfruitful in the work of the Lord. Father, tonight would you give me great enablement and liberty to preach your people during this midweek service, this midweek Bible study time, to encourage and build up your people in the word of God. Thank you for what you'll tell us and do. If there's somebody there tonight watching by live stream who's not saved, we pray for their salvation. We pray their heart would be steadied in the Lord, and they would just call on the name of the Lord to save them. Bless our service tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in the study of 1 Corinthians. The theme comes out of 1 Corinthians 10.31, God glorified. This is about the fifth or sixth message we preach. The first two messages centered itself on the beginning days of the church at Corinth, found in Acts chapter 18. We'll be back there for a minute tonight. And we saw God glorified through a church start. God is always glorified when a new church starts. Our, our third message was, or second I would say, was God glorified through his enrichment. We saw in chapter 1, the Bible says, but you are enriched in him. And how God has blessed us with spiritual gifts and, and, and abilities that are not our own. They are the gift of God that we might be a blessing and help to the local church. And may I say tonight, I hope you'll take some time maybe these next few weeks while we're in this kind of this circumstance we're in. The state, state shelter in place situation. And maybe go to 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, and I hope that you study those spiritual gifts even before we begin preaching about them and determine to know what your spiritual gift is in the Lord. If you're uncertain about your spiritual gift, please send us a message and we will send you a questionnaire to help you kind of ascertain what we think those gifts are. And I pray that you'll find it out because when you get back and I get back, back here physically and we're having church, it is my prayer that every one of us are using our spiritual gift to be a blessing to the work of God. So our last, one of the messages we saw was uh, God glorified through his enrichment. Then in our third message we saw God glorified when we were united and there are no differences or divisions. 
And we saw that the big problem going on with the church at Corinth, which Chloe and members of her household told to Paul, was that there were divisions and factions and strife in the church. Last week, we spent some time in chapter 1, looking at verses, I don't know, about verse 18 to 31, we looked at the subject of God glorified through preaching. And the subject was, what about preaching? Now tonight, we're, we're, we're again in chapter 1, in the last five verses leading into chapter 2, and we want to see some things that, are, that, that continue to dovetail off the last message. Paul, in chapter 1, verse 18, through all the way to the end of chapter 2, is dealing with the essence of the gospel. Now the gospels we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is simply the message of how Jesus Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. And we have to remember, though, to us, we know what the gospel is, but to the people in those days at court, that first century, the gospel, especially the, the idea of a man dying for the sins of the world and being it the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the idea uh, that God was manifest in the flesh and gave his life as a sacrifice for sins, and the idea that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, or that any man would, could rise from the dead, that was a novel idea. That, that caused people to ask questions. That caused people to think about, is this really real? But the demonstration of Christianity, the proof of Christianity, the evidence that demands the verdict is this, that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And so, as Paul was there proclaiming that, he tells us here as he's addressing this church, because remember I said last time, the church at Corinth was divided even about preaching. They had divisions about preaching or teaching. They had divisions about personalities they were following. Some would say they were followers of Paul. And some said they were followers of Peter. And some said they were followers of Apollos. And even those who, were, who, who professed, I guess you would say they were hyper-spiritual, they said they were, they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ over all that. And so Paul, chapter 1, and for our message tonight, verse 26 to chapter, to chapter 2, verse 5, continues to talk to us and teach us about the ministry of preaching, the ministry we have to people. Two words are recurring in these verses we're studying tonight. Two words are recurring. The word wisdom and the word power. The words wisdom and the words power. And Paul is infusing himself into this passage by helping us to understand the essence of ministry. And I please, I hope that you listen to what I'm saying tonight. Especially if you are a teacher, you work with our clubs, if you serve in any capacity of ministry. And by the way, all of you should be serving God. That he addresses the priority of ministry for every age. And what Paul said in that first century applies 20 centuries later here in the 21st century. Because as you look at this, I want you to listen to me very quickly tonight. This is more of a practical theology message, I guess. Paul addresses the who of ministry in this passage. The who of ministry. In other words, who are we ministering to? Who are we ministering to? Now, if you were talking to the, the, the wise man of the world, the businessman, the secular person, they would say, well, of course, he's talking about the target audience. He's talking about who he's targeting it to. But Paul is addressing, for you and I, who are we ministering to? Now, you have to think with me for tonight. Think with me for tonight, wherever you're ministering. Who are we ministering to? Then secondly, not only is he in this passage addressing the who, but secondly, he's addressing the what. The what. Now tonight I'm preaching before a live stream camera crew that are more than six feet apart from each other. Praise God, amen. And, um, you know, as we think about what they're doing, we think, 
you might say, well, they're doing ministry. And they are. But the Bible is asking, is, Paul's going to answer a question here. What are we supposed to be doing? And you might say that the secular mind, the wise man of Corinth was asking, what is the mission behind what you're doing? What is the mission behind what you're doing? So there's the who we're going to answer. There's the what we're going to answer. Then what you notice, there's a third thing. There's the how in what we're going to answer. The how of ministry. How are we supposed to do ministry for favorable results? Now the secular mind, the wise man of Corinth will say this. Well, the how of ministry is basically the process. It's the strategic plan, how we execute the strategic plan. It's the process and what we do that. And so tonight, maybe that might be a little bit over our head, or maybe for those who, who are great business gurus, maybe to you that's just, okay, I understand that. Get somewhere with this, Pastor, and I will. But we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we supposed, how, what, what is ministry? What is the priority in ministry we're supposed to be doing? And Paul's going to address that tonight. We're going to see this here in this passage of Scripture as we look at this matter, as we end up looking tonight at standing in the power of God. Now, if you have your notes out in front of you, I want you to see the first thing tonight. I want you to go back to chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 27 to 28. The first thing we're going to see tonight is the, the determined prerogative. The determined prerogative. Now we're looking at how God wants us to see ministry. And here we're going to look at the who of ministry. And this is critical here because we're going to see some key phrases. Notice in verse 27, if, you, if you'll look in your Bible there, it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, has God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. When Paul came to Corinth, he came to a society that was uh, exalted itself in human wisdom, philosophy, and intellectualism. It exalted itself in philosophy, human wisdom, and intellectualism. The gospel, as I said earlier, was new and novel to the people in the island of Greece. You had Athens on one extreme, which was the intellectual center of philosophy and the poets and so forth. You had Corinth on the other extreme, which was the Vanity Fair and the materialistic aspect of society. Both kind of intermingled with each other. And so the idea of the resurrection from the dead was very incredulous to them. And so you can imagine here, <coughs> there was no church before Paul got to both these cities. And here's this little short of stature, fireball of a Baptist preacher who comes into there, who has all the Jewish credentials of a Pharisee, who've been taught under the, under the, under the tutelage of Gamaliel. And here he comes. He stands at the synagogue, well, if we could actually go to Athens and say that he was there on Mars Hill and he just was burning in his heart because the Bible says he was moved inside of him because he saw a city holy given idolatry. He said, man, I can't deal with this anymore. I've got to get up and preach about it or preach against it and I've got to preach the gospel. And in spite of those people being very hardened towards him and, and being very intellectualized and not wanting to make an immediate response, thank God there were, there were responses. And thank God there were people saved. And Paul moves on from there because that was a difficult crowd he had. And Paul moves on to Corinth. And you have to bear in mind, Silas and Timothy were not with him. And Paul's there, and he starts his ministry off after he gets settled there. And he starts, he starts declaring in the synagogue of the Jews. He reasons with them about the gospel. And the Corinthians look at him, both Jews and Gentiles alike. They look at him, and this is their response to this. They want to be impressed. They want to be stimulated. They want to be proven with facts. I don't know if you ever had this experience, but if you get around a bunch of people that are, are very educated and beyond their bachelor's degree, they've got master's and PhDs, and they've written papers and thesis, and they're very articulate in their words, and they've got a vocabulary way beyond yours and mine, 
And they'll typically, when you get up there, if you say something, oh, he's going to tell you that about Jesus Christ, about the gospel, they typically just fold their hands like this because they're waiting to hear something they have not heard before because they, they just think of Jesus Christ and they think of him as just a Christmas fable and they think of it just as a story and they don't believe the Bible is the word of God and they're saying, okay, I want you to impress me. I want you to stimulate my thoughts. I want to see what you've got to say. And quite honestly, they're just scoffers looking at these things. And these people looked at Paul that same way, and they said, well, who do you think you are, Paul? And what makes you think you have something to tell us? So you notice here, Paul is telling these Corinthians who have gotten these believers now, because remember, this was the society they were in. When Paul had left, they were teachable. When Paul, when Paul was there, excuse me, they were teachable. When Paul was there, they followed. When Paul was there, they submitted to the word of God. When Paul left, there were these factions and divisions, and wisdom started to come back again because some intellectual people started to mess with the minds of those people who had been exposed to intellectualism and wisdom. And that's why the word wisdom is used quite frequently here. And it was a contest between the preaching of the cross and the wisdom of man, or the wisdom of man against the wisdom of God. And so Paul here, notice in verse 27 and 28, he starts off, we see this determined prerogative. He wanted them to understand as he gets into this thing, he wants them to understand what God has chosen. He wants to understand what God has chosen. He wanted them to understand the, the, the who of ministry. He says, I want you to understand, he says, that when God sent me there, when God sent me to you, he says, when God wants to use somebody, I'm going to tell you who God wants to use. And notice in verses 27 to 28, number one, we see a principle. In this prerogative, we see a principle of God. And before I get to verse 27 to 28, I want you to notice verse 29. Because in verse 29, Paul establishes for us a principle about, about the who in ministry. And Paul said here that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Now when he said of him are you in Christ Jesus, he's taking account different backgrounds, male and female, different levels and walks of life. And he puts everybody on an equal playing field. He says, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now those four things, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, Jesus Christ is all of that to us. He's all of that in us. And I don't have time to get into the doctrinal exegesis of that, but I'm going to say tonight, he's all of that to us. What we are lacking, Jesus Christ more than makes up for. Amen? Jesus Christ takes care of that. But Paul said, verse 31, that according as it is written... He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now the principle is this. Whoever God uses, God uses us to give him the glory. God does not use us to give ourselves the glory. There's no boasting that you should have. There's no patting on the back that you should have. All this man worship stuff needs to come to a halt and realize that he that glorieth must glory in the Lord. And so, notice, if you would, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Because Paul, in quoting verse 31, is quoting out of Matt, Jeremiah 9, verses 23-24. Don't look at your notes, please look at your Bible. And he says in Jeremiah 9, verse 23-24, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. He's saying, let him that glorieth glory in this. Paul was saying it this way. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We have a principle here, okay? And this determined prerogative, number one, in ministry, we better make sure God gets the glory. 
Number one, we better make sure God gets the glory. Hey, listen right now. Make sure God gets the glory while you're listening to preaching tonight. Make sure God gets the glory that you make a decision that glorifies him. God must get the glory. Now, we see this principle, but notice the preference, the prerogative or preference, okay? Notice the key phrase in verse 27 here in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen who he uses. God has chosen the kind of people he uses. And do you see these Corinthians were looking for a philosophical, a philosophical person to come and tell them about Jesus. And some of them wanted a man of great who met their criteria of being a wise man to tell them about Jesus. And some of them wanted a mighty, articulate man to tell them about Jesus. They didn't want someone like Paul who stuttered and was rough in his speech. They wanted someone like an Apollos who was very articulate and a powerful preacher of God's word. They wanted somebody who had kind of the, the, kind of the, the, the personality of a, of a Peter there. I mean, they wanted, they were looking at human stature as their means for, for being ministered to. But God said here in verse 27 to 28, there are four groups of people God uses to accomplish the goal which will give him the glory, which you notice this. Number one, there's the foolish things. God uses that which is foolish. Now, that which is foolish means that which looks absurd and quite honestly, stupid. Now that sounds kind of, wow. Do we do that? But he's helping us understand. God uses the foolish things of the world to glorify him. The word foolish, we get our word moron from that, if that helps you out in understanding foolish. He talks about a second category, the weak things of the world. Weak means without any strength. Infirmed. Feeble. You know, that ought to encourage us tonight for you older believers who you are, your health is waned and you don't have the strength that you used to. And you feel like because you get tired easily or you don't have much strength that there's nothing you can do. Let me tell you tonight, there is something you can do. There's something everybody can do for God. He talks about the foolish things. And by the way, let me talk about young people. Sometimes children think, well, the adults are doing it. We've got all these talented guys here. Let me tell you, children, you can serve God. Samuel was five years old. He served God inside the temple. Yes, he did. He served God. He was sensitive to the things of God. They're the foolish things. They're the weak things. He talks about the base things of the world God uses. The, ba the base things of the thing are things that are considered uh, very, very lowly and maybe crude, ignoble and cowardly. He talks about the despised things of the world, that which is esteemed the least, that which is considered contemptible. And notice how he describes it. He says, things which are said at naught. The, de the determined prerogative. God uses the foolish and the weak, the despised, and the base things of the world. You see, the world scoffs at someone who doesn't speak very well. And the world scoffs at someone who doesn't have much of an education. And the world scoffs at a preacher who doesn't have much to deal with. And they say, what do you have to tell me? And I think of some preachers right now that are some of the greatest men of God in the world. The people don't even know about them. But from an economic standpoint, they are, they're, they're driving a broken down jalopy. They're barely making it, and yet the power of God is on them, and yet the society looks at someone like that and scoffs at them. The Bible says God uses the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised, but the wisdom of this world says we want the educated, the intelligent, and the rich, and the articulate. Hey, watch right now. We're looking right now. Nobody on Fox News, nobody on CNN, Nobody on KRON4 News, nobody on any of the news networks, they're not asking a preacher about what to do right now. They're asking Bill Gates. They're asking, they're asking the national director, the doctors in charge of infectious disease. They're asking the politicians. They're asking these people about the, they want the people who can sign the paper. They want the people that somehow, somehow meet the criteria of being educated. But nobody's asking a preacher. Nobody's asking someone who has the word of God. What's God's mind on the matter there? 
Now, remind you tonight, God uses the foolish and God uses the spy. And so Paul is ministering here to these Corinthian believers because they're saying, well, who is this Paul anyway? And what does he have to say to us? And look at him. He's not, he's not an athlete. He doesn't have athletic physique. He's not strong. His speech is not like an Apollos. He's not educated like some of our philosophers. He has no money. He's broke. Look at him. He's a tent maker on the streets. What does he have to tell us? They're looking for things to impress them. But I remind you tonight, God has chosen. God has chosen the foolish, and God has chosen the weak, and God has chosen the despised, and God has chosen the base thing. Hey, can I remind you tonight, the Bible is despised by man and by the intellectualism. But I'm going to tell you tonight, God uses his word to change lives. Preachers are considered foolish and despised, but God uses preachers to change societies. By the way, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Bible college is seen as despised and foolish. But let me tell you tonight, there's a right place for Bible college of getting theological training and getting your heart humble before God. Listen, more than just learning the Bible is letting the Bible get a hold of you during Bible college, of learning surrender in Bible college, of learning how to sacrifice during Bible college, of learning that you give your all in Bible college, of learning how to get a heart for people. Bible college is not for you to get your head filled up and you swell up thinking you're somebody or to figure out that you've got great articulation skills. Bible college is there to teach you to learn how to fast and to pray and get a hold of God to get you ready for real ministry because real ministry is learning how to get your face before God and praying down God's power in your life. So winning is seen as foolish and despised. Some of you who like to sleep in on Saturdays and then you change your lifestyle and you decide, I'm going to go so winning. And I'm thinking of a dear lady in our church just really growing in the faith. She decided to start going so winning and her husband got mad. He's not saved. He got mad at her. But she's been faithful up until this last time. I think she came for four straight Saturdays to come to soul winning because she was burdened to learn how to be a good witness of Jesus Christ. Listen, soul winning is despised. And let me tell you tonight, if you don't believe in soul winning, you despise soul winning. Going to church on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, here's what the world says. That's extreme. No, that's being faithful. They say, well, that's extreme. That's just because we're not used to that. And one of, our, one of our good brothers sent me a message on Sunday night. He said this, and Pastor, I had a, a friend of mine, their church, when this all hit, their church was already only meeting twice a month. Can you imagine only twice a month? And, they, and the pastor said, well, listen, I, I guess we just want to have church. And finally, that man told our, our good church brother, and our, our brother here in the church, he says, listen, I've got enough character in me to know I've got to be in church at least once a week. And our good brother who's here on Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday night, he said, I just want to let you know I'm here three times a week. He said, wow, man. He says, you really go to church, don't you? Let me tell you what. The world is going to tell you that church is despised and you're abnormal for going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night. Wednesday. I'm going to tell you tonight, you're not abnormal, you're normal, amen? If you're not at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you're, 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 you're abnormal. But if you're at it like you are tonight, you're a normal person before God. You better say an amen right now in the comments, Amen. A surrendered life is seen as being foolish, base, and despised. You know, here's what happens. You sit there, and a preacher gets up, preaches his heart out, and says, you need to surrender your life to God. Surrender your life to God. We use, the, uh, we use this illustration. It's giving a blank piece of paper to God, signing your name on the bottom, and saying, God, fill in the blanks. A surrendered life is not putting a disclaimer on the bottom or footnotes on the bottom saying, but by the way, God, these are the reservations. No, you don't tell God your reservations. You just put it all on the line for God. But that's seen as despised and rejected. And I think a lot of our, our generation, a lot of our generation, they'll surrender their life as long as they know they've got a meal the next day. And I'm going to tell you tonight, you need to learn to trust God for everything in your life. God is chosen. God is chosen. God chose the weakness of Abraham and Sarah, whose bodies were as good as dead. And they told people, can you imagine this? We're going to have a baby. I'm 100 and she's 90. And you can imagine 
You can imagine the old folks group there saying, you're going to do what? You know, I mean, just they became the laughter of the town. In fact, even when they first heard it, the Bible says that Sarah laughed. But God chose the weakness of Abraham and Sarah, which the Bible speaks about this, to produce a miracle son called Isaac, who would be the start of the Hebrew nation. God chose a despised inmate. I'm going to use the term inmate slash prisoner, whose name was Joseph. He was an inmate prisoner. He had not shaven for I don't know how long. And Egypt was in a quandary. The Pharaoh had had a dream. He couldn't figure it out. Nobody could figure it out. And then a man who had been in jail with him said, Oh, I remember. I forgot about him. They brought Joseph out. What can this man do for us? And God took someone who was despised and considered base. And Joseph, because he interpreted the dream, and because God had a master plan. And by the way, let's never discount the master plan of God. God's master plan was to use Joseph, as the Bible says, to save the world. God chose a despised shepherd boy to defeat a giant named Goliath. And if you read the context there in 1 Samuel 17, David was despised. David was seen as very weakly. David was seen, was called proud. He wasn't proud. He was called the base thing. But God used him to be the game changer there on the battlefield there in the Valley of Elah. And gave was the game changer for Israel to win that battle because he was the one that defeated Goliath. God chose four young Hebrew young men who were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And they were served the king's meat and the king's drink. Now the king's meat and king's drink was food offered to idols and was alcoholic beverages. Now that being a typical teenager today, they would have said, wait, this is great. I'm under 21 and I can drink. You shouldn't drink, by the way. I'm not endorsing drinking. And there may have been some of their peers that said, well, you know what? Nobody's watching and we don't have to give account to anybody. But there were four Hebrew young men. They grew up, they grew up in church. And they had some convictions. And the Bible says that they determined in their heart. The Bible says they refused to give themselves to the king's meat, the king's dream. Those four young men, listen, the Bible says that God chose their foolishness. They, they looked to the man that was overseeing this and they said, look, give us 10 days. Prove us with just eating a vegetarian diet. Just prove us to eating a vegetarian diet and come back and check us out. And he found them healthier than all the other young men. And you know what the Bible says about those, those four young men? God said that God, that the nation of, of, of the, 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 the Babylonians, they found them ten times better than the rest. And I wish I could go on. But how about Ruth the Moabitess? How about the little, ma little maid who brought the message to Naaman? How about Mary of Nazareth? How about the lad who had five loaves and two small fishes? How about the, the concept of the church? The church is despised. It's considered base. It's considered weak. And so over the course of the last 50 years, we've got purpose-driven churches out there that have tried to give dignity to the church. Listen, your purpose-driven ideas don't need to give dignity to something that God has already given dignity to. God has chosen. But how about you? Are you someone there that's shy and introverted and backwards? You can hardly speak. You're shy. You feel like God can't use me. And you say, yeah, that's me. I'm foolish. Yeah, that's me. I'm base. Yeah, that's me. I just got a jail. I'm, I'm, I'm despised. Let me tell you tonight, God has chosen those things to use them. And I want to tell you tonight, if you're insecure about being used of God, and you are insecure about, about being used, just what you could do, I'm going to tell you tonight, God can use you. But I want to tell you tonight, if you're somebody who thinks you're so haughty and big that you think that there's more that can be done, you think God needs you. God doesn't need you if you're filled with pride. And God doesn't need you if you're filled with a bunch of ego. God needs you tonight if you've got a heart for him. I'm just saying tonight, there's a determined prerogative of God. Notice, secondly, very quickly, we've got to see something else. We've got to get going. Secondly, quickly, notice the desired persuasion. First, we saw who God uses. 
Go with me to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Secondly, see what God uses. Number one, we saw who God uses. Number two, we see what God uses. The desired persuasion. Now here the Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians his motive for coming to them. And you've got to ask yourself the question, what's my motive in ministry? What am I supposed to be doing? And as I just said, the Corinthians were impressed with strength and wisdom, articulation and all those kind of things. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to adhere to preaching. We'll see that in a minute. They had divisions regarding personalities. So Paul infuses himself into this issue. Because remember, the church at Corinth, pardon me for saying this, but the church at Corinth was in a dysfunctional state. It was a backslidden church. It was a church that tolerated sins. It was a church that the way they solved issues, they went to court against each other. It was a church that did not deal with serious sin matters. It was a church that was divided by personalities. It was a church that was patting themselves on the back. They were doing all kinds of stuff. It was just not a biblical church by any means. And Paul saw part of it that one part of the reason was they were intellectualizing everything. They wanted to intellectualize everything. They wanted to do it by a certain textbook there, and the textbook was not the Word of God. So Paul had to infuse himself in this matter. Notice, first of all, Paul undenied his manner. Paul undenied his manner. Look at verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Paul said, listen, when I came to you, I didn't, come, I was, I didn't have excellent speech. I almost imagine Paul saying there that when he got started there, he probably stuttered and ooh and ah, and he just, and, he, and just as far as the Corinthians were concerned, he wasn't like one of their, the, the, the kind of speakers they were used to. He said, I did not come to you with excellency speech or of wisdom. There were some there that expected to be, to be, to, that expected to be, uh, uh, to be intellectually stimulated, and they did not get that. They wanted some worldly wisdom, and that did not happen there. So he says, he, notice later on, he says, he makes a statement here. He says in verse 4, he said, um, Verse 3, excuse me. And he said, when I came to you, I was, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Now, that's kind of interesting. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Well, that kind of coincides with Paul says to what God has chosen to use. And Paul said, you know what? I, I'm a living testimony of what I'm going to tell you here. Now, I want you to notice when he said I came in weakness, fear, and trembling, I want you to notice some things. First of all, when he arrived in Corinth, I want you to remember this. When he arrived in Corinth, he was all by himself. He was all by himself. Hey, all of us are tough. And all of us look good when we're in a group. But how much can you get done by yourself? A lot of people want to have groups and teams. And I'm for that. But if you're asked to do ministry... You're not being asked to go recruit 15 other people to do it with you unless you were authorized to do so. When you're asked to do ministry, that's an opportunity for you to realize your inefficiencies, your deficiencies, and say, listen, what can God do through me? And so watch what happens here. He's by himself in Corinth, and as soon as he got there, I mean, just watch how God unfolds his thing. He gets settled, and he made friends with a Jewish couple that got saved and were part of a group down there in Italy stirring things up. And they were told they had to leave Italy because they were stirring things up. And they went to Corinth, of all things. And there Paul and them met, and they found out they had a lot in common. One of the first things they found out was that they, they both knew how to do tent making. And so they invited Paul into their business, and they said, okay, we'll give you some of our materials to start off, and we'll give you a little place there. And whoever comes to you, you can have that business. And they helped him get started. And they probably invited him into their home. And he stayed with them. And he found out that as they spent some time there, Paul used that opportunity to disciple Achille and Priscilla. He discipled them. And the church got, and Paul started his ministry of starting the church of Corinth with those people there. But you have to remember in those early days as they were starting, Achille and Priscilla, they were co-workers who were just learning the ropes. I mean, they were not like Silas and Timothy. You have to remember that. They were not as well-versed and trained as Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke was. I mean, they were just learning the ropes there. 
So Paul's all by himself. And so the Bible tells in Acts chapter 18 that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the Bible says he reasoned with them and persuaded the Jews. I mean, Paul did what he had to do. But I want to remind you, he was all by himself. He had fear. He felt his weakness. He was trembling. I imagine that he got some very intimidating questions along the way. I imagine that he was challenged along the way. And as you get challenged, you know what happens sometimes when we get challenged? We want to try to answer the challenge through our wit. We want to try to out-talk somebody. But I think there were moments of time Paul basically was speechless. He didn't really know what to do. And Paul said, I was with you in fear and in weakness and much trembling. He felt weak in comparison to the philosophers. He felt unsure of himself. He felt completely helpless. He felt abandoned and all alone because he was by himself there. He felt inadequate for the task. He did not go, go, uh, go in or proceed with an air of overconfidence, pride, or haughtiness. And denied his manner. And secondly, notice here, not only when he was in Corinth, he was by himself in the beginning. Would you consider this? Again, Paul's statement was, I was with you in fear and in weakness and much trembling. He was there by himself, but note, before, this is before Silas and Timothy came. But notice this also. When he was by himself, Paul saw little to no fruit. Paul saw little to no fruit. And I want you to understand something. When Paul was at Athens, that was a shell shocker of an experience. Because those people, they scoffed at him, and they said, we will hear thee again another time about this matter. And basically they're just saying, when we're ready, we'll talk to you. And in spite of all that, he had, he had some results, but it wasn't what, perhaps, what he was used to. And Paul's feeling a little bit insecure and unsure of himself because in his mind he's thinking, do I need to change the way I do ministry? Do I need to conform to the culture? Do I need to meet them on their intellectual level? You know, uh, I, I praise God there's men like Ravi Zacharias and, and men, men like that that are very intellectual and can to deal with that level of people there. And, and uh, you know, somebody needs to do that, but that wasn't Paul's cup of tea. And so Paul's there. He's preaching in synagogues. Nothing's going on. The Bible says when Silas and Timothy came, he was pressing the Spirit. In other words, I think two things happened. Number one, he was encouraged. But number two, he felt like, man, i got to see some results. Now I know how he feels. I know how it is to go weeks without seeing somebody saved. I know what it is, the feeling of going weeks and feeling like the power of God's not there. And Paul was feeling unsure of himself because he didn't see much fruit at Athens. And those first few weeks he's there at Corinth, he wasn't seeing much fruit. So Paul, he was undenying his manner. He said, when I was with you, I, he says, I realized I was weak. He said, I was trembling. I had much fear. He was intimidated. Listen, here's what Paul was coming to you. I'm saying all this to tell you this. He, uh, he, was, he, he, was, he was undenied in his manner. Paul realizes one thing. God was working in his life to bring Paul to the end of himself. He had to learn what it meant to be broken in spirit. He had to learn what it meant you have to come depend completely on God. And Paul was realizing there, as he came to this persuasion, that I'm not broken enough. I'm not leaning enough upon God. I'm at this place. I have not come to the end of myself. So Paul, we see, he, under, he was undenied, he undenied his manner. But notice, secondly, Paul underscored his message. Now, I want you to watch this and listen very carefully. Especially if you've been around ministry for a while. Now, when we don't see immediate results... Or we're examining trends while well, I'm reaching the millennials. And the millennials and the baby boomers, they're different. And when we don't see results or immediate results, or like in Paul's case, not only did he not see a lot of he didn't see any results, he had a lot of pushback. And he was feeling a lot of rejection. The devil puts in your mind and my mind, listen to me tonight, 
He puts in our mind, what do I have to change to see the results? We call that pragmatism. That's the problem today with the young contemporary preachers and pastors that are taking churches that I don't believe that they're ready for. And basically, they get in their little hobnob groups, and here's what goes on. They try what they were taught and has been proven by an older, proven man of God. But they decide it doesn't work for them. They decide what well, worked for you during, for that generation of people, but it doesn't work for this generation of people. So they become pragmatic, and they say, what, what do we have to change, or what do we have to do? But I want you to understand something. Paul was at this quandary because he was by himself, and he had little results. And he said, I was with you in fear and much trembling. And he said, I, basically, I was intimidated, and I was there in much weakness. So Paul, he, he undenied his manner. But what you notice here in verse 2, Paul underscored his message. Let me read verse 1 and 2 so you understand what I'm saying here. And he said, I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now, Paul made very sure they understood his primary goal there was not to feed the poor or to establish a soup kitchen. I'm not against that. He said, but that wasn't why I came there. The first, foremost reason why I was there, I came there, I did not come with excellency speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. He was called of God to preach. He was called of God to preach the gospel. Let me say to the men who are called to preach, you are not just called to preach, you are called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ there. For he said, for I determined, I made it my quest. I wanted to be absolutely sure I determined not to know anything among you. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now what does he mean by that? He's underscoring his message. What is he saying by that? I determined not to know anything among you. You know what he was doing there? This would help every one of these contemporary church guys that are going out there. He didn't go to the community and take a survey and ask them, what do you think about church? And then they decided to, to draft up a, a manuscript and say, we're going to be a church that meets the needs of the community based on what the community told us. He didn't go and take a poll of them to ask them, what do you think about church? And he didn't ask them, he didn't ask them, what did they want in the church? And he didn't ask them, do you want a traditional service or contemporary service? And he didn't ask them, do you want church three times a week or church one time a week? He didn't ask them, do you want, do you want uh, traditional music or contemporary music? He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't ask them all that. He didn't make his priority the building of a crowd. You know what Paul said there? When I went to you, I determined one thing. I only wanted to do one thing. I wanted to know one thing. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wanted to know one thing. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you heard about the preaching of the cross? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? Do you know that he's the Son of God? Do you know that he died for your sin? I saved, I, he says, I determined not to know anything save one thing, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen, the message we have today is the same message Paul had, and the prerogative we have is that we are to preach the gospel the same way Paul did. Paul said, do you know the Christ of Calvary? Do you know Jesus died for your sins? That's why as a Baptist church tonight, I I want to tell you this evening, I make the priority of our church the preaching of the gospel. I make the priority emphasis of everything we do, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, the God, everything revolves around the gospel. Life, listen, the gospel does not revolve around live stream. The gospel doesn't revolve around what the graphics designer says. The gospel does not revolve around what the choir wants to do or the orchestra wants to do or what the bus driver wants to do. It doesn't revolve what the, what the congregation wants. The ministry, the what of ministry is one thing. We preach Jesus Christ. Christ and him crucified. Yeah. The preaching of the gospel is our primary emphasis. Desired persuasion. You get around me long enough, here's what I'm going to tell you. I'll go to a city somewhere I haven't been before. My first question is, is there a church here? 
Who's preaching the gospel here? Has anybody brought the gospel here? I have a missionary come. I want to know what's the missionary going to do. And if I'm going to support him, I want to know he's going to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't want to hear he's going to, well, you know, you know, there used to be a church here. We're going to restart a church here. We're just going to, you're just falling in the tracks of somebody else that already failed. Why don't you do something to be a success by dying to self and letting Jesus use you? Amen? And listen to me tonight. There is a devious movement going on right now called the gospel-centered movement. That sounds pretty cool. That sounds like it's really with it there. It sounds like we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The gospel-centered movement. And they use that term to make it sound that they are aggressively winning souls. But the term gospel-centered movement, listen to me tonight, is a pseudonym for lifestyle evangelism. That's all it is. If I just live my life, people will get saved. If I live a good, as a good Christian, people get saved. I've been saved 48 years, and I've tried to live a godly life. I've never had anybody get saved because I lived a godly life. I, they got saved because they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not denying there might be a few that get impressed by a godly life, and I understand all of that. But it's just an excuse to hide behind the fact that these same people who hold to the gospel-centered movement, they're also Calvinistic in their belief. They just don't want to win souls. They just don't want to aggressively knock on doors. They don't want to have aggressive programs. They just, they're just hiding behind their Calvinism, and so they say we're gospel-centered. Let me tell you tonight, we are not gospel-centered. We are gospel-centric. We make the gospel the priority of what we do here. We're going to keep the light shining bright. We're going to keep making a difference in our city once this COVID-19 thing, we're over past this. We're going to keep making a difference in our city and the surrounding cities and the seven counties we minister in where we draw people. We want people to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We have an Easter musical and you sit with us. We're hoping to have some kind of a musical, something to give you on Easter Sunday so we can draw a crowd to hear the gospel. And we have a Christmas musical and we have a friend day. All of that is to to know one thing. That is Jesus Christ and him crucified among those whom we bring the gospel to. My friend, tonight, the what of ministry is preaching the gospel. The what of ministry is preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't lose sight of our mission. Don't lose sight of our calling and emphasis. Long after this message is through, I want you to remember the who of ministry. God uses the despised, and God uses the weak, and God uses the ignoble. And the what of ministry, I want to remind you tonight that we may be unsettled about ourselves, but we need to remember one thing. We need to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. But as we close tonight, I want you to see one more thing. We saw the determined prerogative and the desired persuasion. But notice me, verse 5, this is how we pull it all together. We see a dynamic performance. We saw the who in ministry. We see the what in ministry. Notice verse 5. Verse 5 answers the question, the how of ministry. How do we get ministry done? Now go with me to Acts chapter 18, with, please, for a moment. Acts chapter 18. I want you to see what, what, how, how Paul arrived at verse 5. We're almost done. And notice verse six, verses 6 to 8. Now remember, Paul, Paul has not seen any results. And after Silas and Timothy came, Paul preached even harder. The Bible says he was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus Christ. He, pray, he preached harder. He preached more earnestly. He preached, he, all he did for several weeks was preach evangelistic sermons. That's all he did. He preached Christ and him crucified. He said, I wanted to just know one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the Bible says, and when they oppose themselves, you see, they oppose God. And any time a person opposes God, they oppose himself. You're your own worst enemy when you oppose God. And he said, when they oppose themselves and they blaspheme, they blaspheme the word of God. They blaspheme Jesus Christ. They blasphemed his deity. They blasphemed the blood atonement. They blasphemed the bodily resurrection. They blasphemed salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The Bible says they opposed us. They were enemies of the gospel. They opposed themselves and blasphemed. Paul shook his raiment. And he said to them, your blood be upon your heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go into the Gentiles. Now I want you to understand where Paul's at there. Verse 6. 
Paul is feeling rejected. Paul's feeling dejected. Paul is at an all-time low because he was there in fear and now even more trembling and in more weakness because instead of gaining people, he was in a negative, if you know what I'm saying there. He lost people. His audience was gone. They didn't want him in the synagogue. They didn't want him in the city. They didn't want him preaching. They didn't want to hear about Jesus Christ anymore. They had it with him. Paul was at a point, the lowest point of his life. Now when you're at the lowest point of your life, you're feeling rejected and dejected and pushed out, and you're even, the devil's whispering in your mind, see, I told you, you, should, you need to lessen up on Jesus. I told you, you need to lessen up on church. I told you, a surrender life doesn't count. I told you, people wouldn't listen to you. Listen, if you're not very careful, the devil's going to keep whispering in your mind and getting you to think that what, you're, what God wants you to do is foolish and despised. It's that point of time. We see a major shift, a major change. What you notice, it's not God, Paul at work. But you notice verses 7 and 8, it's God at work. Amen? It's not Paul at work, it's God at work. And he departed thence, and this is every preacher's fear. If I lose my building, where am I going to go? You, ju- you keep going, that's what you, you just keep going, because the buildings don't determine whether you have a ministry. People determines you've got a ministry. And he departed thence, which you notice this, how God, this is so great. He needed a meeting place, and a man who'd been listening to him preach, his name was Justice. He said, hey, preacher, I live right next door to the synagogue. You can have church over here. God gave him a better place. He gave him a place that was friendly and amicable to him, not a place that was hostile and anti-Christ and anti-God. And Justice opened his house up, and by the way, I'm thankful, Justice also opened his heart to Christ. God gave him a place. And the Bible says he started preaching, and it's right next to the synagogue. And I believe pre- Paul preached, like I kind of like to preach. He preached loud, and he preached hard. As he started preaching, God just started opening doors. And it wasn't Paul that was doing it. Paul did not change his preaching. Paul did not change his message. Paul did not change his method. Paul did not change his directive. Paul did not change his, where he was going. He just kept on doing what he was doing. And the Bible says in verse 8, we see a major change. God started to save people. And not only were they getting saved, they were getting baptized. And verse 8 says, And Christmas, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed were baptized. Hey, there was a game changer that happened. What was that? What was the game changer that happened? Go back to 1 Corinthians 2, 5 and we're done. The game changer here was a dynamic performance. And now it was no longer Paul doing his thing. It was the power of God doing God's thing. And listen tonight, Paul stood out there as he wrote this epistle. And he said to them, Then my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And what Paul is saying there, the thing that changed everything, the game changer, the difference, was God's power working through Paul. And he wanted them to understand something. From the moment you get saved until the day you die, your faith must stand in the power of God. It's God's power that saves us. It's God's power that sustains us. It's God's power that makes us steadfast. It's God's power that lifts us. It's God's power that enables us. It's God's power that uses us. It's not my power. It's not electrical power. It's not atomic power. It's not vocal power. It's God's power that works. And so God did the saving. God used the weak things to confound the mighty and the foolish to confound the wise and the despised and base things to bring to naught the things that are. Hey, listen tonight. Stop doing ministry your way. Start doing ministry God's way. Church doesn't run by strategic plans, although that's important. Church runs by the power of God. The wise man of the world, the strategist, the business manager, they're looking for better methods. God's looking for better men. 
God's looking for better men. Here's why, hey, listen, here's why souls don't get saved. God's power is not there. Here's why little to no difference is happening in our cities. God's power is not there. Here's why our families are dysfunctional and all upside down. God's power is not there. Here's why there's anemic spiritual lives. God's power is not there. As Paul said when he preached to them, it was in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. He's saying, listen, the wisdom of Corinth is not going to help your faith. It's the power of God that you need. You need God's power. Most would spend more time praying for God's power and less time reading the junk of the world was just man's wisdom. There might be a difference in what we do. We need the power of God in discipleship. We need the power of God for soul winning. We need the power of God in praying. We need the power of God in service. We need the power of God in preaching. We need the power of God for our trials. Hey, we need the power of God right now as we go through COVID-19. We need the power of God when, for patience. We need the power of God for forgiveness. We need the power of God for missions. Hey, listen, I'm done. We must hunger for God's power. We must harness God's power. And we must have God's power. Do you have God's power? I said, do you have God's power? If something inside you right now is not burning, where you're craving and desire God's power more than anything else, you're carnal, far from God. And I've got good news for you. We have it. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. Hey, this is broken pottery. It's an earthen vessel. There's a treasure inside, a thesaurus. There's a treasure inside. You know who that is? It's the Holy Spirit of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. Stop fooling people. It's not you, it's God. If you're, if you're, if whatever you're showing, it's not, it's not about you, it's about God. Without God's power, we're nothing. Without God's power, we have no credibility. Hey, by the way, we come back and assemble together physically. Without God's power, we're not going to make a difference here. That your faith should stand, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I get tired of being around preachers. They want to know who your favorite author is. What book did you read? My favorite author is God. My favorite book I'm reading is the Bible. You can make fun of me, but there's more wisdom in this than any the sum total of all the books in this world. Because Jesus Christ is wisdom. And righteousness and sanctification to me. And redemption. What's your faith standing in? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. In power of God. Christian. Families. Teenager. Adults. Are you hungry for God's power? Will you join me in harnessing God's power? And would you pray? Say, God, I've got to have your power. I've got to have your power. If you're not standing, your faith is not standing in the power of God, you're on shaky ground. Because the power of God is Jesus Christ. Right where you're at tonight, you need to get on your knees and beg God for power. Then if you're not saved tonight, that power can save your soul and bring you to heaven. Would you call on Jesus right where you're at? Tell God you're a sinner. You need to be saved and ask him to save you. Father, tonight, thank you. The congregation has listened very carefully to this very intense Bible study. You used the foolish, the despised, the weak, and the base. God has chosen. Help us to come to the end of ourselves. Lord, help us remember that 
the what of ministry is what Paul said. I didn't want to know anything else except Jesus Christ and him crucified among you. Lord, help us to be gospel-centric. And then tonight, Lord, I need your power. The church needs your power. We need power, the power of God to weep. We need the power of God to witness. We need the power of God to be kind and loving. We need the power of God that our speech is not sharp and critical and cutting. But it's, it's, it's building up and loving and encouraging. Father, do a great work through live stream tonight. Save souls this evening. Someone out there might need to get saved. Pray they get saved. While you're there praying, maybe tonight, would you take a moment to send me a message on live stream or whatever device you're watching and let us know if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. You can go to our website and access our prayer works page. It'll pop up. Tell us some prayer works that you got saved tonight. Send us a message that you trusted Jesus Christ your Savior. Why don't you tell me tonight on prayer works that God spoke to your heart and you're claiming the power of God for your life tonight. God made your decision. You're a man and God's called you to preach. God's power called you. I didn't call you. God's power did that tonight. You come and do that with me tonight. Would you do that? Would you let us know what God's put in your heart? Father, bless every decision made. Thank you for a healthy time and a holy time in your word. Dismiss us now with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.